Well, I want to say happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Yes, can we give a big round of applause for all the dads? Father's Day didn't start on as quickly as Mother's Day. It was a lot slower, a lot slower. So, so when you hear the name Albert Einstein, what's the first word that comes to your head? Albert Einstein. Smart, smart. Any of you say uh, slow? Anyone say uh, struggled in school? Actually, in his early years, uh, the teachers thought he was slow. Uh, they put him in the slow math class, like me. They were wrong with Einstein. With me, they were right, okay? <laughs> Anyhow, uh, <laughs> Einstein was just actually bored, bored with what was happening education-wise. And in fact, he famously has said, and no offense to the teachers because I'm married to one, the number one thing that got in the way of his learning was his education. Yikes. Now, of course, not everybody learns the way Einstein learns. He was a self-learner. He was a self-feeder. He was an insatiable learner. Really, he, he never dialed down the childlike curiosity that Jesus actually said he wants to be part of your everyday life. You remember Jesus said you should have faith like a, like a child, right? For such is the kingdom of God to never, never stop asking why, to never stop pondering, to never stop imagining. And he actually, Einstein said he wanted to figure out how God speaks when it comes to math. So just a little Father's Day story. He actually points to really the, the development of of who he became to be, uh, back to a day in, when he was just about five years old. He had gotten sick. He, he stayed home. He was in, living in Munich at the time. He wasn't able to go to school. And so his father came home to visit him, and he brought him a gift. And this gift changed Einstein's life. It was a simple, ordinary compass. And little Albert didn't know what to think of it. And his father did the right thing. His father just handed it to him. Didn't explain it to him. Didn't tell him how it works. Just said, figure it out. And Albert Einstein says he would stay up all night, literally with chills running him down on his spine, watching the, the compass needle move, watching the needle move, trying to figure it out, but also trying to trick it. But he realized no matter what he did every single time, the needle would find its way and move towards the north. And he said, speaking about that, that experience, that compass, made a deep and lasting impression on me because something had to be behind the hidden things that he couldn't see. Are you still with me? So here's the trick of the compass, right? When you put it away, you still obviously are surrounded by whatever is causing that needle to move, right? You see, the compass just makes observable what was already there, just invisible. Are you, you get this? Yes? So think about for that for a second. You can see the effects of the magnetic forces when you have it open. But if you put the compass away, right, you can't see it, but it's still there. So the gift of the compass helped him to see what could not be seen with the naked eye. And really, if you think about it, that's the gift of faith, right? It helps us see beyond what we can see with the naked eye. Somebody say Amen. And he began asking, Einstein began asking these questions. He's like, wait a minute, if there are other forces out there that I can't see, what are they? And so he began to look at the stars and he said, what, what put them there? And what makes those stars shine? And, and what, 
what moves the needle? Why am I here on earth? And he asked those questions. And he said, I want to write an equation that will be really small, less than an inch long. And I want that simple equation to explain the rules that govern the universe. And so he did it. How many of you know what it is? It's on the screen right now. Pretend you do. E what? E what? E equals MC squared. And that is, and I looked this up because I wanted to make sure I got this right, that energy can become mass and mass can become energy, explaining how the stars shine. You got it? I'm still in the slow math class. And in less than an inch, that little equation explained the rules that govern the universe. In addition to this, his theory of relativity, which theory of relativity basically says, the faster you move through space, the slower you move through time. How many of you are with me in the slow math class now? Yeah, all right. Someone said, <laughs> and, and really is, I have a friend of mine who's a physicist, and he's a pretty famous guy. He actually works at, at uh, Texas State University. And he said, John, I'll explain the theory of relativity so even you, John, can understand it. And I said, thank you. He said, if you put your finger on the stove, a second will feel like an hour. Spend an hour with a pretty girl and an hour will feel like a second. That's the theory of relativity. <laughs> In case you're wondering, Einstein was a hit with the ladies, but mostly because of his violin. He wooed them with classical music. He played some Bach, some Mozart, violin. Einstein was a dog. I tell you, he was. He was. But I want to bring you back now to Einstein when he's just five years old. As he sat there and he was tortured by this question, what moves this needle on the compass? What is it? And that's the question I want you to ask yourself today. What is the needle that moves in your life, right? What moves that needle in your life? What is it? Is there a force that points you in the same direction over and over again, true north, right? The direction of love and not hate, the way of generosity and not greed, integrity and character and not lies and deceit. What keeps you going when life is tough? Now, the answer in Einstein's day, of course, was molten iron within the Earth's core. But that's not what the explanation that moves the needle within inside of us, right? Someone say amen. All right. Because I think if you're honest, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter what kind of music you listen to, no matter what color you are, no matter where you come from, we all have this same phenomenon, this same experience, this universal sensation that there's something more to life than I can actually see. There's something out there, and it's not just eating, it's not having a good job, it's not watching the Steelers win the Super Bowl, although that's really good. No? Oh, I get some booze. All right, all right. All right, the Cowboy fans are awake. That's good, that's good. But how many of you, seriously, how many of you have felt it, that universal sensation that, like, hold on a second, hold on a second, there's something more in life. If you've ever felt that, raise your hand. Yeah, I have actually felt it throwing pillows. Yeah, throw pillows. 26 years ago, I was thinking, because in June, coming up, I have a 26th wedding anniversary. And I remember when I first got married, I, I had a pillow, one, and a little twin bed. And when we got married, Renee said, we got to have a queen-size bed. 
and we got a, a queen size bed and I already had one pillow. So I figured she'd bring her pillow and we'd have how many? Come on, help me out. We'd have two pillows. No, no, I walk in one day and there are like 26 pillows on our bed. And I said to myself, what is the purpose of all these pillows? I said, do we use them? She, Renee said, no, no, you don't use them. So I always make the bed. It's a keystone habit. And I'm, I'm putting 26 pillows up on the chair so I can make the bed. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't have very long to live on this earth. How many seconds and minutes of my life am I going to be spend moving throw pillows? I started calculating. Turns out not very much because Renee's actually very good at making the bed. Thank goodness. And so good. Sometimes she makes the bed with me in it. But anyhow, any. So I'm just like, wait a minute, there's something more to life, right? There's something more than throw pillows. Somebody say amen. amen. So I think in small ways and in big ways, we've all pondered the meaning of life. And if we're just a product of chance, right? If, it's just, if we're just smart mud and it's just a biological lottery, uh, should we even care about winning and, and meaning? If it's true that you don't have a soul and when you're dead, it's just lights out, game over, thanks for playing, your quarter's up, does it matter? If it's just natural selection, survival of the fittest, dog eat dog, right? Weak being preyed on by the strong. If that's true, then why do we all ask these questions about immortality, even when we're moving throw pillows, right? Is there a God? Does he know my address? What keeps us going in difficulty? Why, why do we talk about the afterlife? Why do we care about things like forgiveness and guilt? I mean, if, you just, if it's just survival of the fittest, who cares about guilt or, fi or forgiveness? And like it or not, there's something that moves the needle in our life. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us God has made everything beautiful in his time. And it also says these words, and look at these words. He has also set what? What does it say? It set eternity. Uh, in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So the needle in our hearts keeps pointing back that there's something more than throw pillows. There's something more called eternity and transcendence. But like Einstein, we sometimes try to trick the needle, don't we? We try to trick it. And we might even medicate it. And we might even numb it. And we might try to write off those feelings we have. And we might eventually just get rid of the guilt by saying there's no God. And if there's no God, there's no guilt. But though we try, the needle still moves. So what's moving the needle? For me, his name is Jesus. And we were made to live in a relationship with him. You were made to make up there, come down here. God's kingdom come, God's will being done. And until those two things click in your place, you're going to always be haunted by the idea that there should be something more. Somebody get excited and say amen. Amen. <laughs> Sometimes, though, our needle gets confused by other things like fear, anxiety, worries. We get distracted. And I'll tell you a true story about this. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. Larry Waters, this is a true story. Larry Waters had a healthy fear of the ice. 
He had been around it and lived long enough to know that it wasn't anything to play around with. And that's why when he parked his car at the edge of the lake and unloaded his four-wheeler and decided to take that across, it was, it was not going to take the heavier vehicle across the frozen lake. He was going to take the lighter vehicle. And with his wife, Chrissy, on the back, he cautiously began the journey across the frozen lake, noticing that there was a layer of snow that covered it, and there were tracks from heavier cars that had gone before him. So it had held up. And so he assumed if the heavier cars had held up under the ice, then surely his lighter little four-wheeler would hold up. So he's whizzing across, and about the halfway mark of the lake, he felt at the same time, and he heard at the same time, the ice crack and the vehicle jolting. And then it pitched forward. And in his words, uh, before he knew it, he had stopped, dropped, and rolled. (laughs) But not when you're on fire. He's straight into the icy waters below in the lake. The vehicle sank to the bottom like a stone, and he and his wife were floundering there in that hole. And instinctively, like we all would, they made their way to the edge of where they had broken through the ice, and they were trying to do what we would all try to do, and that is what? Push themselves out. But on that frozen ice, and their hands were literally frozen right away, their hands just could not get purchased. No matter how they tried, they couldn't get themselves out of the hole. And soon their hands became numb and they were clawing at the edge and they were trying and telling their bodies to do this, but their body would not respond. So with their wet clothes and their feet now filling, you know, with water and they were just getting weighed down and they began to realize we're going to die. And Larry swam over to his wife, Chrissy, and with a few moments of his life remaining, he gave her a kiss and told her he loved her. And they accepted they were going to die cold, afraid, and alone in that lake. And they were scared and they were terrified. And the words that they talk about on that day have rang true for me on certain days. Maybe it's rang true for you on certain days. How many of you have ever been dead asleep two or three in the morning and you wake up and you're full of fear? Just me? And I'm unable to do what I'm trying to do, what I'm telling my body to do, which is rest peacefully. Let my soul rest peacefully. But my mind frayed and worried, and all of a sudden I find my mind is in a thousand miles per hour. And I'm doing the the worst case scenarios. You ever done that? And I'm playing it all out. I'm at my own funeral. And there's Renee, cashing in the life insurance policy. Some 20 year old guy. She's laying by the pool, covered in cocoa butter. Fetch me another drink, pool boy. Rich and loaded, because I'm worth dead a lot more than alive. Okay, that sometimes happens at two in the morning. See, there are other things in my head. Say amen if you're with me. There are other things sometimes that move the needle in my life. Yeah. Last week, uh, I'm, in, I'm talking about some of these heroes of the faith for me, some people that I've been reading about. Because, And the reason I'm doing this is because I want to look at the wells that they drank from, and I want to drink from those same wells that gave them strength. And Einstein's one of them, 
And, and today we're also going to talk about Teddy Roosevelt. We talked about him last week. And I, I told you about how he became a rough rider. He wanted to be a cowboy. And he went into the Battle of San Juan Hill. And he had a sombrero on. And he had never been a soldier. And he had to cross over that barbed wire and enter a battle. And when he did that, um, he, he felt the power of the wolf rise up in his heart. And I told you that if you accept God's calling on your life, power like a wolf will rise up in your heart. And you sat there frozen, unexcited. And I did not think you had the wolf. And people emailed me, we're not supposed to be wolves, Pastor. They're bad. Three little pigs tell us that. They huff and they puff. So I looked it up. In fact, the Bible describes, the Bible describes what I just talked about at two in the morning. It calls them evening wolves. I looked it up this week. It's in the book of, of Habakkuk, chapter one, verse six and eight, describes an enemy coming against a nation of Israel. And it says this enemy is swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian, described these evening wolves as the things that come against you by night. So there are good wolves and bad wolves, okay? But there's an attack, that assault that comes for you when the sun goes down. You ever notice that your worries and fears always seem to get worse at night? I'm convinced. I don't think the devil takes much time off during the day, but I think the devil definitely works the night shift. I mean, I'm convinced that there's something about 2 a.m., about 3 a.m., when things are just worse. They seem darker, and you have to actively fight against these evening wolves that they come your way, or it will move the needle in your life the wrong way. Are you with me? Do you get this? Yes? Four of you, yes. If I were up to six, all right, okay. Because at 3 a.m., suddenly I'm like Larry Waters and I'm drowning in these icy waters of fear. And I'm having these horrible, bombarding, invading, unwelcoming thoughts in my mind trying to smother me, trying to pull me below the ice in the desperate waters of fear. And the reality is it's happening more and more in our day. Anxiousness, worry, and fear Anxiety seems to be our new normal. And worry is just an everyday part of life. And depression, this dark cloud that people get and struggle with, has a stigma attached to it. Unlike a broken arm, you know, if you break your arm, you don't go around ashamed of it. You go get a cast on it, right? Yeah, what happened? Broke my arm. But with depression, when it's sometimes in someone's head, it's not, it's, you can't really put a cast on it. And so what do we do? We attach a stigma. Well, they're depressed. You know, they're weird. And that's just wrong. Somebody say amen. As though it were a betrayal of your love for God if you suffer from depression. And people just want you to, you know, if you just pray better, you wouldn't be depressed. Or, you know, have you ever thought about not struggling with depression? <laughs> but there's also things we do that cause these things to be more and more prevalent and can even at times cause them to come into being where they were not. Where there's not mental illness, where there's not this anxiety, it becomes this downward spiral. Because what happens when you're at 2 a.m. and the evening wolves come and you're drowning in that icy water, when you're, when you're worrying and you give your mind over to the anxiety, we actually choose to do that. I know it's a weird thing to say you choose to worry, but worry and, and thoughts come to us without us inviting them, right? I didn't invite them. But we can actually choose to worry. We can choose to do things 
because Jesus actually said you should choose not to worry. And if Jesus said not to worry, that means it can be a choice as well. Think about it this way. You have so many horsepowers in your engine of your mind. And your horsepower in your mind, like a, like a car, cannot go forward and backward at the same time. So you cannot worship and worry at the same time. This is from the book of Emotional Intelligence, which is a great book you ought to read. It talks about self-management, emotional intelligence. It says, it, it quotes some studies uh, in the book, the number of worries that people report while taking a test directly predicts on how poorly they will do on the test. So if you ever thought while you're taking a test, I wonder if I'm going to fail. I think I'm going to fail. I don't know the answer to that one. I'm afraid I might fail. I think I might fail. Your worrying is now taking up your horsepower that's supposed to be focused on the test. Does this make sense? So listen to me very carefully, and you know this, worrying makes you worse. How many of you ever said, man, I worried all day. It was great. <laughs> Can't wait to do it tomorrow. 2 a.m., I got an appointment with worry. You do worse anytime you're worrying. And Jesus says you can actually choose not to worry. How? By worship, by prayer, by peace. Did Jesus have a lot to worry about? Uh, certainly. Everybody wanted him dead. So think about it this way. I only have so much finite horsepower in my mind cognitively to put in one direction. So I, I could be putting it here or I can be putting it here. I can be putting it towards, you know, living my life or worries. And what happens is we get these wolves that come at 2 a.m. in the morning and we give them, you know, space in our head when we shouldn't. We let them rent space in our head for free, right? And, and we, we let them in. And the whole enterprise, what I'm saying is we've chosen collectively as a culture to accept this. The CDC says that suicide in the last 20 years, in my lifetime, has gone up by 25% United States. Suicide has shot up 25%. Now, if you look at veterans, that's, that's a much higher number because we don't do a very good job at helping our veterans. We need to do better. And actually, the CDC says those numbers are actually low because many people, particularly men, try to make their suicide look like an accident so they, their families can get insurance policies. So here's where we're at with these wolves and the problem. Are you still with me? Are you still awake? Say amen. I'm not going to worry about it if you're asleep. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. That was a joke. Yeah. So I have this needle in my soul and it moves and sometimes it points me towards God and sometimes it points me towards fear and worry and I can't do both. I only have so many horsepower. I can only do one. So I turn to God's word, which says not to worry. And then God's word tells me more. And I turned to the scripture this week. And I actually read the scripture at 2 a.m. And, and I found this move my needle away from worry into security. This is the verse that God says about me and about you. For you, that's you, are the children of light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. 
Now you can stop there and just take a big breath because that's why we had Miriam in the band and they did it amazing, do that song called You Say, right? You Say. You are a son of the light. You are a daughter of the light if you're a follower of Jesus. What does God think about you? He thinks that you're a son of the light and a daughter of the day. That is to say you are not your pain. You are not your past. You are not your guilt. You are not your shame. You are not your family of origin. You are not your dysfunction. You are not your depression. You are not your overeating tendencies or your undereating tendencies or your obsessive compulsive nature that drives people away from you. Who are you? A son of the light, a daughter of the day. How many of you really know that? How many of you really believe that? How did that song go? You are my sunshine, my only son. I'm not singing. No, I'm not singing. Oh, yeah, like you're disappointed. Oh. And yet when the enemy can get us to identify ourselves by our mistakes, he can keep us crippled in a loop in a downward spiral of disorder because your mind cannot worship and worry at the same time. So the enemy's like, I got to get, get that mind off of worship. But when we say, hold on for a second, I am who God says I am. And I flip the script, it changes the game. And suddenly your daily activity should come from your new identity. So you can do this. You can, you know, people go around, they're like proud of worrying. Oh yeah, I'm the worry word of the family. Oh, great, congratulations. <laughs> How about saying I'm the person of faith in the family? It's my new identity. What you choose to do tomorrow, what you choose to do with the precious minutes and hours that you have giving this life of faith, living this new life, it should come from your day-to-day -day activity, should come from your new identity. It'll move the needle. It will move the needle from worry to worship. So let's get back to someone who got in touch with who he was as the son of the light. I mean, you know, we're getting ready for an election year. I'm just looking at past presidents, man. I, I want to resurrect some of these guys. Somebody say amen. <laughs> you look at Teddy Roosevelt. You talk about a tough president. Teddy Roosevelt, when he died at the age of 60, young, the sitting vice president at the time said this about him, and I love this so much. Death had to take Roosevelt while he was sleeping, for if he was awake, there would have been a fight. <laughs> That's powerful. The guy was a stone-cold killer. Not only was he a rough rider and a leader of them, not only was the original barbed wire crosser into manhood where the power like a wolf rose up in his heart. He wrote 26 books. I've written a thousand sermons. I can't imagine writing 26 books. One time, true story, he actually took down pirates. Pirates. Pirates stole his boat. He was so mad, he got two of his friends, and they hunted pirates for like eight days. They snuck up on them, arrested them, couldn't put them in handcuffs because it was so cold. Their hands and feet would have swollen, and, and the, 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 the cuffs would have fallen off at night, and it was this complicated thing with temperature. But anyway, they couldn't handcuff the pirates, so he took their boots and shoes away and held them at gunpoint till the authorities came for like a week, because the authorities took a week to get there. Can you imagine? Teddy Roosevelt, just stay right there, pirate. For a week. 
how tough was Teddy Roosevelt? This guy knew who he was. He was campaigning to be president for the second time because the first time he got president, the, the guy who had office had gotten assassinated. So he's just sort of an innocent president, sort of fell into it. Youngest president we ever had, instant president, right? So he had to campaign to be the president the second time. And while he was doing this, he wasn't crisscrossing across an Air Force One. He was actually on a train, a lot different. So he's going around the, the country in a train. And one time he gets up to give a speech out of the train. And his opening line was hardly remarkable for a presidential speech. He says, friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. His second line, however, was a bombshell. I don't know whether you fully understand that I've just been shot. So the horrified audience in the Milwaukee auditorium on October 14th in 1912 gasped as the former president unbuttoned his vest to reveal his blood-stained shirt. And he says, as he continues the speech, it takes more than this little bullet to kill a bull moose. He reaches into his coat pocket and he pulls out a 50-page speech, which he says, because of its length and thickness, actually helped save his life. How many of you think I give a long sermon? Come on, say amen. Go ahead. All right, it doesn't need to be that enthusiastic, all right? 50 pages? It's a 90-minute speech. Saved his life. His aides are like, we got to get you to the hospital. He's like, I got to finish my speech. He did. Wow. He lost that election, by the way. Maybe he was crazy. I don't know. But he was a fighter. He was a fighter. And that's one of the things I'm trying to tell you is you got to think of yourself. Hey, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a son of the light. I'm a daughter of the light. I'm a fighter. I am not my worries. I am not 2 a.m. And if you let God into your heart, if you let God into your life, if you invite Jesus in your soul, there'll be some fire that moves your needle away from worry, away from fear, away from anxiety into peace and strength. There needs to be some fire in your spirit because life's not a playground. It's a battleground and the stakes are high and there are people everywhere that we need to reach. And you have to, as a Christian, have a different mentality. And once you've declared war on the old mentality, your whole shift will shift, Right? And one of the keys to living right is preparing for life every day. The easiest part of my week is right now. And I'll tell you why. Because we have prepared all week for this moment. Sometimes it goes like you want. Sometimes it doesn't. But when you look at Jesus, Jesus always played the game before the game. He got right at two in the morning so he knew he could face what was going to happen at noon the next day. He always did the game before the game. I'm going to show you this. The game before the game was where it happens, where he, he was ready to go play the game, but he, but he was ready because he had practiced. It was in Gethsemane. This is actually a, a story out of Gethsemane. We know Gethsemane where Jesus was sweating blood, right? But in Calvary, when Jesus was walking to Calvary, he was walking in peace because he had got himself straight in Gethsemane. Gethsemane was where he prepared for the crucifixion. Because you can't rise up like a wolf if you don't bow down like a lamb. And Jesus in Gethsemane got his face on the ground and he's praying. And if you look at the story in scripture, and I looked at it this week, it's amazing. In between the Last Supper and Gethsemane, he did something I never noticed before. 
We talk about the Last Supper and the bread and the cup. And we talk about Gethsemane and Jesus sweating, you know, drops like blood. And we know that leads to Calvary. Hello and Easter Sunday, right? And that's the end of the story and he wins. So we're on the winning team, right? But in between the Last Supper and Gethsemane, there's this little detail, little footnote in Matthew 26, verse 30. It says this, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now you read that and you're like, what does that mean? Well, hold on a second. It's saying when they had sung a hymn, when they had sung, the Last Supper's over. The whole deal's done, but not to the Mount of Olives yet. Well, we got to go. We got to go. Jesus says, no, 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 let's stop. Let's sing a hymn. Let's move the needle back to worship of God. They sang a hymn. Now, how many of you, you're about to die, are going to go, hold on. I got to sing a hymn. Let me get my, my playlist out and listen to the song one last time. Why? It's so powerful because Jesus knew that before the greatest battle of his life was here, he needed to prepare himself some time by singing. And if Jesus needed to do that, how much more do we need to do that? Do we need to prepare ourselves for life? Because this battle looming, he knew what he needed to do. He had to worship God before he went and laid down his life for God. He had to worship God before he gave his life for you and me. See, people talk about worship being a weapon against darkness, but it's not just a weapon. It's the whole war. Listen to me carefully. Worship is not just a weapon that wins the war. It's the whole war. People say, did you go to church today? Did you watch church online today? Did you go to worship? Listen to me. You worship every day. It's how you spend your time. It's how you spend your money. It's how you spend your life. You are worshiping something. Worship is the war. It's a war of what are you going to honor most? What are you seeking after? What's the most passionate thing in your life? What's moving the needle in your life? Is it you? Is it your fame? There are lots of acts to worship. Giving is worship, a bang is worship, Bible studies is worship, all that's worship, but it's not less than singing, meaning every time we see a picture of worship, it involves singing, it involves this idea. Why? Because there's something that shifts inside of you while we sing. Why do you think we sing four songs every week? Is it because we have a great band? Yeah, kind of, sort of, yeah. But it's also because it helps shift your needle. It alters your mood, so you, it's important to raise your voice. And sometimes that means you worship by picking up the phone and calling someone and saying, I'm hurting, I'm scared, I'm alone, I'm thinking about doing something bad, I need help. And that's called being brave. That's called being a fighter. That's called saying, I need a cast, and it's not for a broken arm. I hope this is helping you. I'm almost done. If you're still awake, say amen. amen. All right, so my point is, look, you got to fight. You got to fight. You got to fight at 2 a.m. You got to prepare yourself at 2 a.m. so you can face 12 noon the next day. And you keep showing up and you keep showing up and you keep fighting. You just keep showing up. One of my favorite stories I've read recently is the story of the company Leatherman. Stay with me. Are you awake? Say amen. This is a simple pocket knife that has pliers in it. You could take for granted a pocket knife with pliers. Well, it didn't exist till it did. There was a man named Tim Leatherman was on a trip to Europe with his wife uh, right after college. 
from Oregon, Portland, and he and his wife were in a car, a Fiat 600, that kept breaking down. And he had a Boy Scout knife, and he had a pair of pliers that he kept working with. And he said to himself, if only this was in one knife, if only the, the pliers and the knife was in one, one you know, unit, that way I wouldn't have to switch hands and it would be a lot easier. So he got home and he said, you know what I'm going to do with my life? I'm, he's an engineer. He said, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a knife that has a pair of pliers in it. Two years into the project working on in his garage, it wasn't going well. On his birthday, on the second year, he broke down weeping and calling his brother-in-law saying, I can't get the pliers to work and the pocket knife to behave. But the next morning he showed up, he kept showing up, he kept fighting. And on the third year, he got a patent for it. And it's something today known as Mr. Leatherman, but at the time he called it Mr. Crunch. Mr. Crunch, pocket knife and pliers. And at this point, you would say it's happily ever after, but that's not how it went. Even though successfully he got one made and he got it patented for five years, there wasn't a store or anyone that would buy one. Every store, every hardware store, every company rejected him and said there's no market for a pocket knife that has a pair of pliers. The company Stanley, you know Stanley, Stanley Thermoses, you know the thermos that your grandpa had, the thermos that you might have when you go on a trip, you know, that keeps your coffee hot, all that stuff. They said to him, no one will ever buy this product. Year seven, he's still working on it in his garage. He almost gave up, but a friend said, keep going, keep fighting. And year eight, there was a little known company called Cabela's. And they said, we'll buy 500 of them. But we're not going to call him Mr. Crunch. We're going to call him Leatherman. And Tim's Leatherman, they sent 500 Mr. Crunches to Cabela's, and they got $12,000 for it. And the rest is history. That company now is headquartered in Portland. It employs over 400 people. And there have been over 30 models of the Leatherman that have been issued. Now, there's a probably... Uh, how many of you have, have a Leatherman? It's like... 15 hands up, right? And they're passed down from father to son, generation to generation. <laughs> and he was told by experts for 10 years, it'll never work. Give up. How many times did he wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning and, and those wolves that said to him, this will never work, just give up. And he could have allowed his needle to be moved in the wrong direction. Can you relate? Winston Churchill once said, success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. And I just wonder where you're at on that journey today. Are you thinking about quitting? What are you thinking about quitting? What do you think about giving up? What dream are you beginning to lose faith in? And where are you at on that journey? Don't let those other voices move your needle. Remember, you're the son of the light, a daughter of the king. Remember who you are and let that move your needle. Live out your identity. You are a child of God. Because what I'm saying to you, if it's a fight, here's what a fight looks like. It's not round one and it's over. It's not just, well, I fought. I tried to control my thoughts. I tried to speak differently. I, I tried to you know, worship instead of worry, like Pastor John said. I tried to write a sermon that worked. I tried to start a business. I tried to work on a marriage. That's not a fight. 
A fight is a bloody round after bloody round. A fight is getting knocked down and getting back up again. A fight is spitting out your tooth in the sink. A fight is going from failure to failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. And I want to speak this over your life. I want to speak this right now that God loves you, that has a plan for you, and wants you to do more than you could ever know. But you got to get some fight in you. Why do you think I'm talking about Roosevelt and Isaac? Because they had some fight in them. Somebody say amen. amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, get some fight in you. Come on. Don't start fighting, but, you know, do it peacefully. Now, what about Larry? We left Larry and Chrissy drowning in the ice. You're probably wondering, what happened to Larry and Chrissy? Pastor John, you never finished the story, but I'm going to finish the story right now. Larry kisses his wife goodbye, but he said just before he began to sink, he reached down in his pocket and he felt a leatherman in his pocket. And God only knows why he thought of it in that moment, but he opened it up and he opened it up to the pliers and he stuck the pliers in the ice and he began to drag himself out of that hole and he did get purchased and he turned around and dragged his wife out and they were saved because of a leatherman. See, you're fighting a battle. You're trying to win the war within. There's a needle within you, and it points to God. But there are other magnetic forces that want to pull you in other directions. But you're not the only one. There are people all around you, people in your family, people in this church, people in your life. And you may not even know their names yet, and they're trying to win it too. And if you give up, how will God ever use you to reach them? Tim Leatherman never knew in his garage at year six about Larry and Chrissy. He never knew that one day there'd be a couple that would crash through the ice and would use his invention to save their lives. But he didn't give up. So I want to speak that to you as you continue to fight the good fight. And, and not just live for yourself. But, but God wants to save lives through you. So don't give up. God wants to change the world through you. Einstein found there was a force that was moving the needle. You and I can find that force as well. It, it points to God. Let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks for this time to gather and to look at how you have moved through people like Einstein and Roosevelt and Tim Leatherman and Larry and Chrissy, and you move through us. God, we pray that as we look at the needle in our lives we, we look at what moves us. We pray it will not be the magnetic forces of worry or fear or anxiety, but of you and worshiping you. And when we feel those, those 2 a.m. wolves that come to visit us, we'll turn to scripture, we'll turn to worship, we'll turn to a song and we'll pray and our needle will be pointed back to where we can truly live our lives. God, help us to have a fight. Help us to be and live out our true identity, which is to be a son and daughter of the King. Help us to do that. I know we can. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who taught us as we say now together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our day of bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not in temptation but deliver us from evil, for thine is kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. 
Amen. It wasn't 50 pages. It was like 15, all right? I don't think 15. Would 15 pages stop a bullet, Miriam, you think? 15. Probably not. Okay, all right. Next week, 50 pages. No, I'm just teasing. All right, let's stand and sing this last closing song. Thank you so much for joining us at Grace Presbyterian Church. We hope and we trust that this message was a blessing and gave you much encouragement as you face today. At Grace Presbyterian Church, we are a church family that welcomes everyone who welcomes everyone. And we would love to welcome you. So please join us either online or in person. You'll find a community that loves God and loves each other. And we are blessed by other people joining us. So please come and join us at Grace Presbyterian Church.